I don't know if you noticed or not, but apparently TJ and I decided to wear the same color shirt today. And then I uh, looked in the choir, and uh, half the choir had the same color shirt on, and I thought, well, the difference between all of them and me is I make this look good. Then I saw Jerry West, and man, his shirt looks good on Jerry West. So <laughs> it's the only time I'm ever going to give him a compliment from the stage. Listen, glad you're here. Uh, we are, like I said, into week three of our King Jesus series. We've been looking at uh, the kingship of Jesus and how Jesus has been establishing himself as king from uh, really the entire Easter narrative and as, as everything kind of played out. The first week we looked at Isaiah chapter 53 and the suffering servant and how it was God's will to crush him and how we would uh, see this crushed king. Uh, and then last week we looked at the triumphal entry uh, about the guys laying their cloaks down as he came in riding on a donkey. And, uh, and we kind of ended that whole idea of uh, that story when Jesus is in the temple, and remember the the Pharisees were not happy uh, that the the children were singing praises to uh, to Jesus, and they said, "Don't you hear what they're saying?" And Jesus just responds, "Yeah, I do," and and he just kind of leaves it at that. He he asks them a question and quotes some Old Testament scripture, but just basically looks at them and says. Yeah, I do hear what they're saying. And, and we kind of pulled away from that going with it. It was exactly right. And what they were saying was right. And he was being honored as a king, uh, even in that moment. And so this whole time, we've been looking at his kingship. But the problem with all of this is that uh, when Jesus was born, there was already a king. There was already an established king, and let's give you a little bit of history lesson here just because I think it's important to kind of set this context. Julius Caesar, as you know, won his popularity as a Roman general after he conquered Gaul in 50 BC. This is 50 years before Jesus ever was born. Uh, Julius Caesar dreamed of a uh, unified Rome and as, a, as an emperor, as a, as a dictatorship of Rome, uh, and uh, we all know the rest of that story. He is, his dreams were cut short. Uh, um, uh, and the Senate, uh, when the Roman Senate uh, assassinated him on the Ides of March, uh, and, and his dream in that moment for himself died, but did not die in full. His, uh, his grandnephew, uh, its kind of adopted son, his name was Gaius. I'm going to read this, Julius Caesar Octavius. This is Octavian. We know him through history as Octavian. He kind of rose to power. He was really Julius Caesar's only uh, heir to the throne, if you would. Uh, and so he had a little bit of a power struggle on his hand. Octavian uh, wanted to fulfill the dream of his uh, of his grand uncle, uh, if you would, uh, but using his name, Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius, uh, he kind of rose to power, ended up fighting off and defeating eventually Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, uh, bringing in Egypt into the Roman uh, rule. Uh, he, he took off, uh, he, he fought off uh, Brutus and Cassius. You guys remember that from maybe even your uh, history class in, in high school, A2 Brute, right? He, 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 he defeated those guys and then eventually was crowned as the first emperor of Rome. Uh, he ruled until 14 AD. And so he was on the throne as the emperor of Rome when Jesus was born. After he uh, defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, the Senate then granted him the name Augustus. And so he was then for known as Caesar 
Augustus. Augustus means victor. It means exalted. It means reverend. And it means the vulnerable. And so we see this, we see this title given to Augustus. And so when we read Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken in the entire Roman world. This is not only historically correct, it's also uh, spiritually correct, right? We have this kind of cohesion of worlds. This is not just a, a, a scripture story that's written in here. It's also historically correct and true. And so we have this emperor who's on the throne, who is powerfully on the throne. Augustus ruled uh, during the golden age of Rome. They, they were able to expand. They were able to kind of uh, do a lot of different things. Um, the Roman road system was fully in place by this point. They were, they were able to mobilize troops very easily and effectively. But in, in most places, it was fairly peaceful because no one wanted to fight Rome. They were so powerful. They were so big. Everybody else just said, well, I'm not even taking them on. So they ruled fairly easily, but with a very heavy hand. So they had all these different provinces that they ruled over, but still allowed some local government to take place of. And one of those provinces was the province of Judea. And in Judea, we know that it had been underneath the rule of Hasmodean kings for centuries. The Hasmodean kings had ruled and reigned in Judea. And this goes all the way back to the Seleucid Empire, which goes all the way back to Alexander the Great, which I don't have time to get into all that. I love the history of all this. And so the Hasmodean kings kind of allowed themselves to rule in this area. Rome allowed them to rule as well. Pompey, the general Pompey, uh, conquered Jerusalem in and, and, uh, about 60 B.C. And so uh, since that point, they were able to continue to keep their, their title as king, even though they were ruled by the emperor. And so what we have is we begin to see all these things begin to unfold. And then one of these kings, by the name of Herod comes to power. Now, Herod was connected. He was very well connected. He was friends with Julius Caesar. He was friends with Cleopatra. And he was friends with Augustus. And so when, uh, when Augustus came into power, he had a good friend ruling in Judea. As a matter of fact, the Senate under Mark Anthony allowed Herod to be entitled with the name King of the Jews. They, the Roman Senate gave him the title King of the Jews. Now Herod was connected, but he was a little bit crazy too. He killed uh, two of his wives and three of his sons because he was afraid that they were going to try to take over his kingdom he ruled with a very heavy hand. He remodeled the temple, added on his own living space. That's the reason why it's called Herod's Temple, if you read that in history. Um, he had all these different kind of wild things, but he would do anything to protect his legacy as Herod the Great. And anytime you read Herod, the first Herod, you're going to read him as Herod the Great because that's how he demanded to be called Herod the Great, King of the Jews. And so Herod was desperately jealous and insanely protective and willing to do anything to ensure his legacy. And so we begin to read in Matthew chapter 2. 
Matthew chapter 2 says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, this is Herod the Great, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and had come to worship him. Now this moment was a slap in the face to Herod the Great. Where is the one born king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. I've, got, I've earned the right to be called that. Rome has given me that title. No one else gets to be called the king of the Jews. So this so-called king that has been born must be dealt with. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. It's obvious why Herod would be disturbed, right? We understand this, his, his insane jealousy and, and, and his, his kind of neurotic behavior leads to him to be disturbed. That what word, that Greek word means agitated, troubled, restless, or anxious, right? We could get that. We feel that for him almost in a sense of, okay, we can understand that. But I was, I was really struggling with the phrase, and all of Jerusalem with him. Because you got to remember that Jerusalem, although they respected Herod the Great, they didn't, they didn't love him. I mean, some of them did. But they weren't just all bought in to his vision and his rules. As a matter of fact, if you were to read in Luke chapter 2, it also says that the people were looking for the consolidation of Israel and that they were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so there's, there's this uprising within the, the Israelites who are living under King Herod, under the Roman uh, Emperor Augustus, and they're just waiting for this Messiah, this, this one who's going to come and he's going to put everything right, and Israel's going to be back as the power, and they're going to be in charge of everything, and this man, this Mishnah, this Messiah is going to come, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign, he's going to bring everything back underneath the God that they worship. And so Herod knows there's a little bit of turmoil. There's this little undercurrent. And I read this and I go, okay, I get he's disturbed. But why of everybody else? And it kind of clicked. This past week I was reading through this again and I was like, okay, okay, God, why? You've heard it said like this before. Let's put it in the good old southern Arkansas vernacular. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Y'all heard that? Uh, well, in this arena, if you're going to put the word ain't in the Bible, which it's not, okay, it ain't. Um, if Herod ain't happy, <laughs> ain't nobody happy. It's the same mentality, right? If he's upset, then everybody else is upset too. It's, it's because there's this, there's this question of if the king's upset, what's this going to cost us? How is this going to affect us? And if you don't hear anything this morning, please hear this. Following a king that doesn't cost you anything means that you're not following the king. I'm going to say it a little differently so that, that maybe it's not lost if you say you're following King Jesus, 
and it's not costing you anything, then you're not following King Jesus. See, everybody who lived in Jerusalem understood this concept that when the king spoke, everybody had to obey. And sometimes that cost them something. And yet we move into our relationship with this King Jesus that we've been talking about for the last few weeks and that we come every week to worship and we think, oh, we can do this and it's not going to cost us anything. It's not going to take anything out of me to be surrendered to him. It's not going to take anything out of me to worship him. But over and over again through scripture, Matthew chapter 10, he who has found his life will lose it, yet he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And again, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus tells us over and over and over again to follow him. The king is going to cost you everything that you have. We, I think maybe we miss this portion of scripture when king herod was upset everybody was upset because they knew it was going to affect them in some way they knew that having to follow him was going to cost them something and yet we come to this king jesus expecting nothing of our life to have to change and that we can follow him without any regard to the rest of us and over and over again jesus says no if you're going to come you're going to have to give up everything Either he's king or he's not. Either you sacrifice everything to follow him or you don't. There's no half service to the king. See, the, the Jews, they got that. They understood it. So you guys know the rest of this story here. It calls the chief priests and the, the elders and the teachers of the law and asks them, like, listen, where's this Christ going to be born, right? Where is this supposed to happen? And they answer by quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. It says this, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So the, the chief priest understood Old Testament prophecy, and said, well, if the king of the Jews is going to be born, he's going to be born in Bethlehem because that's what the prophet Micah said. And so what we see from here is Herod hatches a plan, right? We know this plan. He tells the wise men, he tells the magi, he says, hey, listen, go and find him. And then come back and report to me so that I may too go worship him. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so the magi go. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 2, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Upon coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him, and then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And we know this as the gold and frankincense and myrrh, right? Depending on your, your translation, incense can be translated as frankincense. These are standard gifts in the ancient Near East to be presented to a king. Gold as a precious metal. Frankincense as a perfume. And myrrh as an anointing oil. This is, a matter of fact, this is the same three gifts that were recorded in ancient inscriptions of King Seleucid II, who offered to the god of Apollo, 
during uh, the temple, in the temple of Miletus, and, and, and this is 243 BC, this is 250 years before Jesus. And so this King Seleucid II just offered it to the wrong God. But he offered the same three gifts. This is standard procedure for a king. The wise men come, they offer these gifts. But they knew there was something different about this baby born in Bethlehem. They saw him, something that the majority of his people never saw him as. As a baby born king of the Jews. Now I looked up, uh, I looked up ancient monarchs of, of, of people who were, who were crowned either king or queen early in their reign. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, I think she was crowned when she was about 16 years old. Uh, there was one of the Henrys in England that was crowned uh, when he was, I think, maybe two months or nine months old, something like that. There were a couple of different ones. There was one guy that was crowned on his birthday as king uh, when he was born in the, I think, the 1400s or something like that. There's all these different kings that were born that, that, that had regents that helped rule and reign until they got to a certain age. But here's this baby, born in Bethlehem, whom these, these men from the east came and heralded and gave gifts to and worshipped. So they bowed down and worshipped him as the king of the Jews. Now, we know the rest of the story, and you guys are probably thinking, Matt, you're telling us the, the Christmas story, right? You're on the wrong holiday, the Magi, they, they kind of return home by a different route. They're smart enough. They're not called wise men for nothing. They didn't go back to Herod. Herod gets upset. Uh, the angel appears to Joseph and says, man, you got to get out of here. You got to go to Egypt. And so Herod, uh, Herod is coming. Joseph and Mary and uh, the infant Jesus leave and go to Egypt for a little bit. That's because of uh, lots of other history things we don't have to get into why they went to Egypt. And Herod, will, realizing that he's been outplayed, issues a order. Kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who are two years old and under. If I can't figure out where he is, I'll just eliminate him. This is generational genocide. So people want to conjecture about how many people that actually was. So Bethlehem, at the time that Jesus was born, is a population of around 500 people. Two years and under male audience there, we're looking at between 30 and 60 children who this King Herod says to get rid of. So soldiers go and, and do the task that they've been assigned to do. No wonder all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Soon after this, we, the Bible records that Herod the Great dies. His sons and grandsons continue to sit on the throne and retain his title because the one born king of the Jews had been eradicated, right? We've taken care of that problem. We don't have to worry about him anymore. An angel appears to Joseph and says, King Herod has died. You can go back home. And so Joseph and his family go to Galilee. The child grows up, growing in wisdom and stature in favor of God and man. And life goes on. And the Hasmodean kings, the Herodian empire, the Herod empire, all think, well, we've taken care of the problem. We are still the king of the Jews. A few years pass by. 
And Jesus, this man, begins his earthly ministry. He starts doing things that only God can do. He heals people. He gives sight back to the blind. He, he, he raises the dead. He walks around and says, your sins are forgiven, which is an incredible phrase for anybody to utter other than a God. Repentance is preached. Forgiveness is granted. All because the kingdom of God is at hand. And during this time, Jesus is referred to as many different things. He's called Christ. He's called the Messiah. He's called uh, a rabbi and a teacher and a prophet. But he's not ever called king until the end of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. You've got your Bible turned there because this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. In the trial that leads to Jesus' crucifixion, Pontius Pilate, the governor, asks Jesus an incredible question and asks him about his title that has not been used since his birth. Matthew 27, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It is as you say, Jesus. Now, there's a lot of people that for some reason want to say, Jesus never said he was the king of the Jews. Yes, he did. <laughs> right there. And in Matthew chapter 27, you can always go back and say, yes, yes, he did. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes. It is as you say. I love that Jesus doesn't shy away from it, knowing, knowing that there's an emperor, right? There's... There's, there's Herod's the great, Herod the great's son is now ruling in Judea. He's ruling in Galilee. Pilate was the governor of Judea. Tiberius was now the emperor in Rome. There's no room for any other king. And so when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, yes, I am. He doesn't shy away from that. He's not afraid to answer. He's not shrinking back. Matthew 27, verse 12. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. The only question Jesus answered is a question about his kingship. Are you the king of the Jews? He said, yes, I am. Anything else? He didn't say a word to. He didn't have to. Because the king doesn't have to answer. The king doesn't have to reply. He was silent. You know the rest of this story will... We've read it. Hopefully you've read it over the last few weeks. Pilate saw no reason to put Jesus to death. He thought, I'll have him flogged and beaten, and then surely they'll let him go. But the crowd demands Barabbas. You know this story. And they cried for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate then 
kind of washes his hands ceremoniously saying, I don't have anything else to do with this. This is on you if that's what you want. And he steps back or out, away from the spotlight and allows the crowd to make the decision of crucify this King Jesus. Matthew 27, 27 says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. They took his staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him and they took his clothes off and put uh, the robe and put his own clothes on him, then they led him away to crucify him. Soldiers mocked him, calling him a king. Pilate questioned him. The Magi worshipped him. And when the Romans crucified someone, they had something made that was called a titulus. A titulus was a, a wooden tablet covered with a gypsum and was written on in black letters. And on that tablet was the charge that the crucified person was being accused of. They, they would either hang this titulus around the neck of the, of the accused or they would mount it, affix it to the top of the cross and it was, a, it was a warning sign for everyone who was around. This is Roman rule. This person broke Roman rule. This is the punishment that they deserve. If you don't obey the rule of, of, of Rome, then you will suffer the consequences, right? All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us what was written on Jesus' titulus. John chapter 19, verse 19 to 22, it's on the screen, it says this. Now Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where the Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews that were saying to Pilate, Do not write King of the Jews. Rather, write, he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. In other words, I'm not changing it. Now at this moment, Jesus' charge, his titulus, became his title. Right? It was no longer this accusation but it was a pronouncement. This is who he is. This is his rightful name. Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, and the leadership and the Jewish leadership, they knew it and they hated it. Right? Don't say that. That's a statement. That's not a charge. That's not saying he did this wrong. That's saying that's who he is. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. They didn't want a definitive statement on his titulus. This is Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. This is who he was from birth to death. He was pronounced king of the Jews. And notice this, church. The only people who ever called him that were non-Jews. The Magi, 
Where is this one who was born king of the Jews? They were not Jewish. The soldiers in the praetorium, hail king of the Jews. They were not Jews. And Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? The governor. All non-Jewish people. The people that he came to his own never recognized him as king. Church, we cannot fall into the same blindness that the Jews fell into. We can never allow Jesus to be heralded as king by anyone other than us. And you say, man, that's, I mean, that's not a problem. If the church, the church doesn't herald Jesus as king, then nobody else will, right? Wrong. Psalm 91.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and the divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Psalm 96.11, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant, let everything in them, let the trees of the forest sing for joy. All of creation heralds Jesus as king, we better too. Never allow anything or anyone to praise him as king if you're not going to. As a matter of fact, remember the story from last week during the triumphal entry, right? And, and Luke's account of that, we read Matthew's account. In Luke's account of that, when Jesus rides in and all the religious leaders and the high priests come up to him and are saying, don't you hear what they're saying? And they say in Luke, they said, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus responds, if they are silent, then even the rocks will cry out. Church, all of creation declares the glory of God, and we had better too. The Jews missed it. They missed it. And I wonder how many times we miss it too. I wonder how many times we don't honor him as king, or we don't obey him as king, or we don't follow him as king, or we don't praise him as kings, and we sure don't submit to him as king. And don't miss it like the Jews did. From birth to death, he was king. Here's my last thought. Now, let's just go with me on this because this is so good. I'm going to kind of tie in three weeks of preaching into this one last thought. So here's it is. The first week we talked about the suffering king, right? It was the Lord's will to crush him through his crushing he would save. In week two we talked about Jesus riding in to Jerusalem, this king of peace, they laid their cloaks on the ground. Uh, he cleansed the temple. He healed people, all the while being praised as king. Now, why did he come to Jerusalem? Do you remember? He came because it was Passover, right? He was coming to celebrate Passover. Everyone who could would come to Jerusalem for Passover. And, and this is what would happen because we know that if we read back in the Old Testament, Exodus gives us some pretty strict rules about what happens at Passover. You take your lamb, your best lamb, your spotless lamb, and you sacrifice it. You spread its blood on the doorposts of your home. You bring in the meat. You eat what you can. And you do not keep any extra, right? You, you bring in what is enough for you, and that's it. You eat all that you can that night. You don't keep any extra. So people would come to Jerusalem 
and they would bring their lamb. They would bring their sacrifice, and this became a multi-day event. You just didn't come in on the day. You came in and maybe stayed a couple extra days. And these lambs that were brought in would have to be identified somehow. If, if it was with a multi-day event, they got to be out. They got to be in a pen. They got to be out in a the field. They got to be. They got to be uh, able to eat and and do all the things that animals do. And so, what the owners would do is they would put a name tag on their lamb to differentiate between whose sacrifice was whose. And so, the owners would write their name, their family name, and place it around the neck of the lamb. They would tag them. So when it came time for sacrifice, we could identify ours. Now let's draw some major connective lines here. So we know that from this week, Jesus, the Lamb of God, bore a titulus, right? A nameplate, a name tag, if you will. On it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, in three different Languages, And we know that at that moment, the chief priests were upset at this. And there's, I'm just going to be real honest with you. There's a little bit of conjecture here about why they would be upset. Here's the nameplate. This is what it looked like. This is the inscription. Top down is Hebrew, Greek in the middle, Latin on the bottom. If you were to see a painting or a statue of Jesus on the cross painted around the 1400s and, and towards now. You would see the titulus on the cross, but on the cross it would have an abbreviation, I-N-R-I. We call it an acrostic, right? It's, uh, it, it, this dates all the way back into their literature, all the way back to the Babylonian captivity in the 700s B.C. Okay, so this is something that they just did literary-wise uh, that made sense. Everybody understood it. It was a common thing to do. I-N-R-I is the first letter of each of the Latin phrases. I had them circled. Jesus Nazarenos Rex Iudorium. Aren't you proud of me? I practiced that one. I got it out the first time and didn't even stumble over it. I-N-R-I. In Latin, all the letters are mixed. It's same with, with Hebrew when you read in Greek. There, there's no spaces. Okay, So it's just all butted up one after the other. I-N-R-I. Jesus Nazarenos Rex Iudorium. Now, because this was an ancient custom... If you do this in Hebrew, it's something quite incredible. Something that the Jewish leadership would have been very upset over. It makes sense when we read scripture. And I'm going to preface this. There are issues with transliteration. I know that's a big fancy word. Let me tell you what this is. I'm not saying for sure this is exactly how the inscription was written. Because what we know is that Rome crucified. So Rome, who spoke Latin, wrote Latin. They wrote Greek because everybody spoke Greek. And they wrote the ancient language of Hebrew on his titulus. Now what they did is they took their Latin language and transliterated it back to Hebrew. What your Bibles have done 
Because we go back to the original languages. We took that Hebrew transliteration of a Latin transliteration and made it into English. Okay, And so we went back to the actual Hebrew words and made those Hebrew words English words. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now there's, for as many people who will say this is what it says, word for word, there's just as many people that says that's not what it says, word for word. Not the phrase, but the spelling of the phrase. It gets into Greek letters and of all things, I'm not even going to, the Omicron letter in Greek. And I thought, I read that and I was like, of course it is. It's everything comes back to the Omicron, right? Uh, which is the Greek letter O, okay? So there's some, there's some, as many people as you say, this is how you spell it. This is people who say you don't know how to spell it. But this could be, this is what I'm going to say. I'm not saying it is, but I'm also saying it's not. I'm just saying maybe. Maybe in Hebrew, they wrote it like this. Now, for all you Hebrew scholars that understand how to read that, you remember that you read Hebrew from right to left, not from left to right. From right to left, translated into English, this phrase is Yeshua HaNazaret Vamelech Hayyudim. First four letters is Y-H-V-H, which is one of the accepted spellings of the too holy to be pronounced name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Is that not incredible? That on Jesus' titulus was the acronym of God's name. So if this was, you can spell it Y-H-V-H, Y-H-W-H, J-H-V-H, and J-H-W-H. If this was the name of God, then just like all the Jews coming to Jerusalem putting their name tags on their sacrifice, God put his name tag on Jesus. His sacrifice was made for us. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, not a charge, not a condemnation, not even a title anymore. But the name of God, the sacrificial lamb of God that takes away our sake. This is the sacrifice that God made for you and I. He provided right relationship with God the Father. He died in our place. And he was a king on the cross so that we could be a child of God. And I read through that and I go... Of course he had a name tag. And of course God wrote his name on it. This is a king that from birth to death is worth our devotion. He's worth our obedience to. He's worth us sacrificing ourselves to follow him. This 
name of God puts God's handprint on the cross. It says, this is my sacrifice. It's bigger than all these lambs that you guys offer over and over again. This is a once and for all divine sacrifice of God. So, what do we do with this? Do we just play at this? Do we talk about, oh yeah, God's important and Jesus is important and all that stuff, but I'm going to live my life however I want to? Or do we just come to the cross and see his name on it and worship the king who was crushed for us? I'm going to ask you to stand and bow your head and TJ's going to come and we're just going to have a moment of response and, and we see all these things come together this one moment and it's just incredibly heavy and it's incredibly just like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this is what. And it really is, it's unbelievable that a king would love us enough to die for us. That God would send his son to be the sacrifice for us. And that in response to that, we just kind of play it, relationship with him. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe, maybe this morning, maybe we just need to be honest enough with ourselves and honest enough with God to say, you know what, I've been, I haven't given you what you deserve because of what all you gave to me. I haven't been, I haven't been obedient to the things you've called me to, or maybe I haven't been uh, sacrificial in the way I live my life. Maybe I haven't done the things you've asked me to do And how can I not in response to all that you've done for me? A king from birth to death and we just play at it? Can't be the definition of our life. Can't be the legacy that we live. Maybe today it's the day to surrender. Maybe today it's the day to say, we'll give him everything that we've got. Because he gave us everything he had. If you need to come forward and pray, or if you want somebody to pray with you, I'd be happy to do that. If you have questions about this king who was crushed, I'd love to answer those. This is your opportunity to respond to whatever God's teaching you and telling you in this moment. Maybe it's a moment of surrender. Let's pray together, and you come as TJ sings. Father, we love you, and we thank you for today, and we thank you for the, tu- the truth of your word and the beauty that is written in it. And God, you were so gracious to send your son. Not as a, just as a normal person, but as the son of God, as the king from birth to death. And so, Father, we pray that in the next few moments we could be honest, that we could be real, that we could be transparent with you, that we could be vulnerable in this moment to say, maybe we haven't surrendered everything to you. Maybe we haven't lived a life of obedience. And in light of everything that you have done for us, Father, how could we not? This is our moment to respond to what you're speaking to us, Father. Speak clearly. Don't let us leave without being 
obedient to what you have for us in this moment. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. I ask you to just keep your head down and your eyes closed. If you need to come and pray, then you come and pray. If you need to come talk to me, you come as TJ sings.